Are you ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day intense workshop class for individuals or teams. They cover Angular 4 and 2, and focus on the skills and knowledge you need for complex, data-rich applications. They also still offer AngularJS for teams supporting older projects. Bring them to your site, or send developers to them in St. Louis, San Francisco, New York, DC, and other cities, and online at angularbootcamp.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. This week on our panel, we have Ward Bell, Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Sorry. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, no, I'm not hearing that they're like invisible guys. Yeah. Whoa. Ward who? Yeah. Uh, can we try that again? Sure. Oh, no, I want this to be the final cut. It's hilarious. Oh, we should. Yeah, we it should is. just leave it. We also have Alyssa Nichol. Hey, guys. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a couple of special guests. We have uh, Matt Hippley. Hi there. And I started with you because I know I can say your name. <laughs> and we also have, should I even try, or do you want to say your name for us? I want to hear you uh, say it, Chuck. I want to hear you do it. Butcher it. Yudes Petonet Vincent. Yeah, pretty close. It's Eude Petonnet Vincent. Oh, okay. to pronounce for English speaking people. Don't worry yeah. about it. And, and my French grandmother just rolled over in her grave. <laughs> it, it's all good. Can we, can we do this entire interview in a bad French accent? <laughs> Very bad French accent. <laughs> it's my Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> oh, our poor guests, they know what they're in for now. Oh, he I'm sure he gets it all the time. <laughs> all the time. Oh, no, I do it to my manager. He loves it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but I do not understand what you are saying. Sacre <laughs> bleu. All right. So, do, do you gentlemen want to introduce yourselves before we get too far out there? Sure. Go ahead, Matt, if you want. Okay, uh, my name is Matt Hipley. I'm a user interface engineer, and I've, I've been working on the Clarity project for over a year now. And my background is in the uh, front end space, but I've spent time on you know all all parts of the stack. Um, as the time has gone on, I've gravitated to the front end because that's something I really enjoy. And one of the things I like about working on Clarity is that it's very challenging to look at the front-end space from a component library point of view, very different from a lot of the work I've done in the past. And so hi, my name is Eud again. Um, I am also these days a, a UI engineer, um, web UI. I have been working in backend and, and I mean, just like Matt, um, all, all pieces of the stack. Um, I do like UI because it's uh, pretty much the far west still. Uh, anything goes. Um, you can. It's always moving. There's always something to discover. And the reason I was part of the, the the people who started Clarity, and the reason I went in that is because I've always been attracted to um, writing reusable code or code for engineers as opposed to just writing the apps so i did the same when i was doing java i like writing the the tools and the lower level layers rather than the whole app so component library is perfect for me very cool now do you want to just explain briefly what clarity is 
Absolutely. We might have wanted to start with that, actually, because we mentioned it several times. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Clarity is is not... So regarding this show, Clarity is a component library. Uh, it's an Angular component library, my bad. Um, but more generally speaking, Clarity is actually a full design system, just like material design is a full design system. And the thing is, we've, from the beginning, wanted to work to have both engineers and designers work together. So the design system and the component library are integrated and there is back and forth constantly between developers coding the components and the designers coming up with the user experience they want. Um, and this is what has, what Clarity has been from the beginning. Um, more specifically, we have a set of UX guidelines and whole design principles for designers. Then we have this bootstrap-like layer where you can just include the CSS and a lot of the styles will work for anything static. And finally, we have the full-blown Angular component library that comes on top of that whole stack and lets you get the styles and the logic for more complex components. So um, how did this come about? Was Bootstrap or Material just not good enough? Um, Matt, I'll take that one again, <laughs> if you don't mind. Yeah, so um, Bootstrap, I've used Bootstrap a lot before uh, doing Clarity. My main problem is that when you work for a company like VMware or any other large company, they want to customize Bootstrap so much that you end up fighting Bootstrap and rewriting most of the CSS to accommodate your needs. Um, so Bootstrap is fantastic to get started on the project, but once you have a full-blown product that you know, have product managers and designers giving you precise specs, uh, it's too hard to fight against Bootstrap. But at I want to just time, go ahead and yeah. give a plus one to that. I have a talk <laughs> called um, Giving Bootstrap the Boot, and I actually gave it at NGConf last year, and Love it's boots. literally about yeah. my experience trying to override Bootstrap for custom things. So I'm 100% behind you, and I, I feel your pain, man. So yeah, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but so at, that also meant we didn't want to become a Bootstrap. But at the same time, um, VMware has dozens of products, um, all written as HTML web applications. And they needed a way to unify the UX and the styles across all those products, because up until now, it has been, I hope I won't get fired by saying this, but it has been a mess. Uh, every product, <laughs> designers, uh, its own UX point of view, everything was different. Uh, the what will happen if you right-clicked in some place in the app would change based on the app. It's It was very complicated. So they wanted to unify this, and they've had for a while a <clears throat> uh, some libraries and, and some tentative unification with different you know shared CSS styles and things like that. Um, but by creating Clarity, VMware finally put a whole full-time team on the issue, and suddenly by doing that, uh, it got very, very fast, um, almost instantly adopted across the whole company, and 
we'll still have a whole team maintaining the project. So whenever a product has an issue with, say, the data grid, they don't have to devote dev time to it. They just ask the Clarity team and the Clarity team works on it. So that has been a huge success for VMware. Now their UIs are consistent, their user experience is consistent across the products, and we're reducing the workload for all products by sharing a lot of the code. Gotcha. Now, what, what made VMware want to open source it? Um, Matt, you came right before open source, remember correctly? Right. right. That so, was my first on-site meeting. So I'll maybe I'll let you answer this one. Well, I think one of the draws that brought me to the team was the fact that it was uh, a desire to, to give back to the outside community. It wasn't going to just be isolated to an internal project. And so when I came on within the first two weeks, we went through the open sourcing process. And I think we've seen quite a few benefits to doing that in that there are a lot of use cases internal that, you know, we've addressed, but then we'll get issues and, and, and feedback on our GitHub pages about things that we hadn't hadn't had to consider because we were only looking at it from an internal point of view. So I think having the open source, one of the big benefits of having the open source is that we have more eyes on what each component's doing, what it's being used for, how it's being used. And uh, that's a big, a big win, I think, for internal uses as well, because we can address on both sides of the table. That does come with some challenges, but I think that's the big thing for me that is a um, is a good part of the open source initiative. That was yeah. something I wanted to ask you. So you you were there right before they open sourced, right? Um, because I've got a friend who uh, I work with on some software, and we've talked about open sourcing. Uh, Joe, winky winky. Um, but <laughs> one of our concerns was that we'd be inundated with. I guess, PRs or issues or tickets that um, would take so much time to go through that there would be never any time to actually develop. Have you experienced that since like the open source or has it not been like that? Just a little bit, right? It's... <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. So the, the surprising part is if you asked us initially, one of the main points of open sourcing was, hey, we'll get external PRs and we'll get more people helping. Uh, that's not the case. People raise issues. People don't actually post PRs. Um, really? Course, I so, thought no, you'll get some. You'll get results. some. But it's there's two parts. First, uh, for every 100 issues you'll get, um, you'll have five PRs trying to solve one of these issues. Uh, that's Ooh. about the ratio we've seen. And the other part is the PRs that come in. Um, the 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 more strict the stricter you are with your code base, the the longer it take and the more you risk alienating people. And this is one part where we are trying to improve. Um, we're extremely strict about our code base. Um, we've got extensive, for instance, test coverage and things like that. And the number of PRs that actually got in after being submitted is pretty low. So we're trying to figure this out. Um, but so far, yeah, PR is not the greatest thing. 
I, I just wanted to add one thing to Matt's reasons. Um, open sourcing for the feedback was a great um, argument for open sourcing. The other one, and there are two other ones, <laughs> the second one was we wrote it to be reusable not only for current VMware projects, but also future ones. And as such, it was completely abstract and reusable. So we figured we might as well give it back to the community uh, because it was ready. There was no real point in just keeping it internal. We wouldn't make money off of Clarity, so we might as well release it and contribute to the community because we're using Angular and we're using other open source projects. And the last one, and that one is actually very interesting, but it's very specific to VMware. VMware does software, right? And when you buy VMware software, you install you install it on um, hardware that might be HP, Dell, Fujitsu, whatever the hardware provider is. Um, and those hardware providers want to integrate with our products seamlessly. You have something that, say you have a whole data center by um, with Dell servers, and they have this very specific um, piece of software that they have on every one of the servers that can give you, I don't know, something like the core temperature of the server or the history of the core temperature or something like this. And they want to display this in the VMware products that let you monitor your data center. And by open sourcing Clarity, every single one of those hardware constructors can just write the piece of software with Clarity. And when it gets inserted inside a VMware product, it literally looks like a VMware product. It's perfectly integrated. And that was a huge selling point. And every single one of the partners of VMware loved it. That makes sense. So what goes into building a component library for Angular? Because, you know, at first blush, I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll just write some components. And I'll, I'll put some styles in it even. Woohoo, you know. But it seems like, you know, the consistency in the design and uh, collaboration and everything else, you know, it, all of a sudden it gets complicated like any other software project. Yeah, that's a good question. I want to let Matt answer it. <laughs> and then add stuff to it, maybe. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good approach. That's pretty much how my PRs go, right? Um, no, but one of the things that was refreshing when I joined the team is coming from a more of an agency startup background, I very rarely got to work hand in hand with a designer on on a small focused problem. And one of the, the first uh, components or two that I started making changes to, addressing issues or, or trying to write, I went through the process of, of uh, reading through the, the spec, which had been already vetted through a design process. So one of the, the first things that I noticed was that Clarity had implemented a very thorough design process where they, they looked at the problem. Maybe it's signposts, maybe it's a, um, a new feature for the data grid, but they took that in isolation, went through several iterations of design and mocking up and, and research, and then derived the spec from that. So by the time I got involved in, in my first component, that work had already been done. And I still had some questions, but a lot of the typical, well, what about this use case? Or what about if that use use case that come up when you're implementing something? Um, 
those many of those questions were removed and that was was very good then then as i went through the implementation process what was cool was you know we're all on on slack so i reached out to the designer with questions and we had a back and forth i would push up prototypes of the component or works in progress and get much faster feedback than i was used to from a a person who was focused on design um, having worked in the front end, you know, you get a taste for it, but it's not something that I would say I'm especially trained in or, or good. I think I can do okay, but having somebody who really focused on just the design thought behind the component was, was very nice. So that's, that's the two first two phases I experienced. And then as I, you know, worked with the team more and more, you know, we went through the implementation phase and then submitted the pull request which again then was under scrutiny from all the team members and you know had to work to incorporate the feedback to get my pull request for the new component or or bug fix or feature into the the next release Um, so that's the the process i experienced coming on board not having been internal to the the company before this it was you know they had a very strong design uh, process and then we had a very close working relationship between the the engineer and the designer when we were implementing and and creating the new component and then the team has a very vocal and as Ud's hinted to earlier uh, a rigorous review of the code because uh, one of the things I've come to appreciate about that process that part of the process is that code that I think is okay having that many eyes and that much of a rigorous process on it means, you know, things that I hadn't thought of are, are caught before it gets pushed out to the general release for the next uh, iteration. So that's my experience with our design implementation and review process. Um, on my side, I want to answer this question as if I want to write a component library, what should I look at first? Um, not specifically clarity, but what what I what we discovered and what I believe when writing a component library is that the first thing you have to write is not the code. Sometimes you'll have people doing test-driven development and I'll say, yeah, obviously you write the test first. No, you don't write the test first. You don't even write the architecture first. You write the API of the component. You write the way you want developers to use your components. And this is critical to me. Um, when you write a component library, you don't have a sing- you don't have just the end user using your component. You actually have consumers who are developers who take your component, integrate it in their app, and then the end user has access to it. So sure, the end user has to be happy. The design has to be flawless, the user experience has to be good, but you have a developer experience to consider too. And I'd much rather have one less feature and an API that I can learn in two minutes than one more feature and having to spend 15 minutes browsing a complex documentation. So writing an API that's as natural and as simple to to understand as possible is critical. And turns out, especially with Angular, because Angular is so opinionated, after you wrote the API, most of the architecture and code is decided. From there, you just write it down. 
but that's what we noticed. And so this is where we're trying to iron out our external contribution process, coming back to Clarity, is we want people to write the API of the feature they want to integrate, uh, of the feature they want to add. Write the API of the new component they're writing. And based on that API, we can discuss it, we can change it, and then they can start thinking architecture and code and tests. But that's the very first step, and that's what I recommend everyone do whenever they write reusable components. Yeah, I really think that's um, key. I, I actually like that idea for for any piece of software. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, yeah. It, it, but it's hard. It's hard to do because uh, you know when it starts out all excited about all the architectures and all the features you can throw at it, yeah. uh, and kind of work. You know, you work out, and then you say, "Well, see, you got to have this API," and it's kind of like, "Wow, you lost sight of the person who has to." to consume it. So I really like your, your perspective there. Another one that I heard that kind of goes along with that is some, uh, um, is somebody suggested that you should write the press release before. You <laughs> uh, and I really like that idea. And, uh, because it says, you know, this is why I think that extra bell or whistle really makes a difference. This is how it's going to make, um, and if you don't have a press release that really uh, makes somebody go, wow, um, then maybe you shouldn't do the feature. So um, I like both of those things together. Yeah, a friend of mine calls that readme-driven development, where you, you write out what it's supposed to do and then you go build it. Yeah, yeah. I think Charity changed changed uh, perspective a few too many times for that to work, but <laughs> I like it <laughs> <you> too. <laughs> So I'm a little curious, you know, I mean, um, you, 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 you evidently, you, you no doubt have heard of Angular Material. <laughs> so uh, Clarity set out um, what to be and what appears to be the same space as uh, Google's own um, uh, UX language, um, which is Material. And then, and then there's Angular Material laid on it. Uh, so did you look at that or did you feel like, uh, you needed your own take on it? Um, what's the relationship? So if any? We, we definitely looked at it. Um, we didn't look just at material, by the way. Um, there was, uh, lightning, uh, from Salesforce. There's, there's, there's a few, um, uh, a few design systems and we looked at several of them, uh, the main problem with material that we faced, and this is something that we heard a lot last year at ng-conf, is that material material is, is designed and, and, and written uh, with mobile development as the first citizen. It's mobile first, then desktops. And as such, on desktop apps, it's very spaced out you have a buttons are huge paddings everywhere are are, are, are quite large etc and we had people coming to us uh at ngconf and every one of them saying i really like material but i spend most of my time just like we said fighting bootstrap this is fighting material reducing paddings reducing margins reducing everything to make it smaller and more and denser and more compact because what I'm writing is not Twitter on a mobile phone. It's a uh, monitoring application for a desktop. And the thing is, VMware specializes in that. 
sure, we like mobile development and we want you know the products to work on mobile. But the very first class citizen is desktop. Plus That's such an tablets. important. Wow, that is really an important insight because you know I mean I live yeah, mostly. It really is. I live mostly in the desktop world also because I have enterprise clients and many of the applications we build together are um, oriented toward people who are uh, familiar with the application. They're not first-time casual users. They're not just sort of floating by and saying, I think I'll check in on on uh, how customers' orders and products are doing today. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, so the, uh, you know, and it's hard to imagine them being able to accomplish a lot in mobile. They can check in on things, dashboards, stuff like that. But the but the primary experience is for a a user who is not trying to change the page, who's trying to see as much information as possible on the page, knows where to expect everything to be, knows what um, uh, you know, doesn't want the page to move, you know, and wants to click, you know, where to click and all that stuff. They're experienced users trying to get something done, and it, it, it imposes a very different design philosophy. Yeah. And that's what I hear you saying, and I know people think you can do both with the same design language, and I'm not sure you can. And yeah, you really I, raise the question. So once again, one thing I hope that doesn't get me fired. Um, my answer <laughs> to the people that were coming to us and say, should I use material or clarity or anger or clarity? Um, at ng-conf last year, uh, my answer every time was, are you trying to write what you called, uh, for instance, an enterprise app with data tables and trees and, and, you know, charts everywhere and things like that? If so, then I'd recommend Clarity. If what you're writing is browsing articles or something like this, then definitely go material because Clarity is going to be a bit you know, stacked together or potentially uh, heavy for what you need to do. So when you say we're in the same space, that's the whole point. We don't think we're in the same space because we're not targeting the same type of applications. Right. Maybe the better word is high density, high information density. High density, yeah. We, we do call them enterprise apps too, internally. Um, yeah, that's, how we that kind of, that's kind of got a stink to it, uh, yeah. even though that's my life. Uh, yeah, I love that word. No, no, I, I don't. Use <laughs> you know, that word. it's pretty much enterprise. Pretty much is a turnoff for some people, or uh, ahead. Of, you know, of course, for other people, and it's not a great divide. But I think information density uh, on a page is something that people recognize as there are different. You know, there are different needs there. So maybe, maybe that's the way to go. Yeah, and just, uh, but just, I get it. I get it. That's helpful. And just to pile on here, I mean, um, I, I I probably do about half of my browsing on my phone. You know, just casual browsing. Wow. But if but That's if I a lot of browsing. But if oh, I want, easily. But if I want to go look something up, um, you know, I, I have a lot of options on my desktop for, you know, tweaking things to make it work. On my phone, I just don't have as many tools. And so for me, the UI is much more critical on my phone. But at the same time, you know, yeah, um, if I'm doing real work, I am on the desktop. And so if you can make that UI just get out of my way then then it saves me much more time than the the ui on my phone if hey, that makes sense haven't you heard we we'll only build apps for phones anymore <laughs> i quit you didn't say that that's all people use anymore is their phones i do all my coding on my phone everything's on my phone wait okay was that sarcasm 
I'm scared. Square. I, I want to see somebody coding, coding on their phone. Really? Yeah. I, only, I mean, like, I, I have tried to code on my phone and it didn't work. So if you figured it out, I want to know. Oh, Alyssa, <laughs> when you when you are finally ready to be a professional programmer, you will learn to come to write all of your code in an email. Uh, it's fairly simple. <laughs> oh you just God. just. You just use dictation, and that's it. Exactly. Oh my God, yeah. you dictate your code. Now, that would be hilarious. Like, a talk on how to dictate your code. Oh, my God. Yeah, you just fire up your Amazon Echo. And I let, I let Siri do the, all the English for me, so, you know, oh they, they won't get the words wrong. Uh, you know, but, I have a question regarding an earlier thing that you mentioned about how, like, Bootstrap and other frameworks, you wrestle with them too much, and how you didn't want to build another Bootstrap. Do you have anything to to say more on that subject of how you haven't built another bootstrap or how you've tried to maybe move the framework away from that? So we're trying to be as flexible as possible. One of the big tasks we have these days, and we're still working on it, is to, this is technical, but to flatten our CSS as much as possible so that any customizations can be done with a simple override. Uh, one of the issues we had is people were asking for stuff and we were saying, sure, but that's an easy customization on your side. I'd we'd rather not add one extra option on our side if it's two lines of CSS on your side. Um, so we're giving those two lines of CSS to people. And sometimes those two lines had a selector that was a bit too complex and this is where we're trying to make it as easy as possible. So we're trying to make customizing as easy as possible Lately, we've been uh, using REMs everywhere so that if you don't like the baseline that defines our vertical rhythm, you can just override the HTML font size itself and that recalibrates the whole app. Every single style in our uh, design, in our, uh, every single style in our CSS depends on that main font size. So we're really working towards making it customizable. But at the same time, like Matt mentioned, we have heavy research and, and, and decision making on the design side from our designers. So what we also want, and this is where we're still kind of bootstrapped by enforcing stuff, but what we're trying to say is when we're enforcing something, please trust us that it has been researched and it's for a real reason. Something as simple as buttons on the left or on the right of a model, right? I know Material has this distinction to where do you put the buttons. And you might want to put, I mean, some users might come to you and say, I want to customize it. Your buttons are on the right of the model. I want, it on, I want them on the left. The answer is, is going to be no, because the user experience would be worse. And this is where sometimes we're still enforcing things. Actually, more than sometimes. We're very often enforcing things. Um, but instead of you hesitating or fighting against it to customize it, what we're trying to do is convince you by exposing the arguments of why we did it that way. And if you go look at our documentation, for instance, we're trying to have on all pages design explanations of why we do certain things that way. Why is the pagination on the right? Why is uh, this bordered, or why does this have an extra um, background color? And this is all explained. Um, one thing also where we really cannot be flexible is accessibility. Um, we have 
let's say higher than usual, higher than, higher than average uh, accessibility requirements from VMware. Um, we cannot escape those. We have to respect them. And because of this, we had someone on the team study intensively contrast and, and legibility of text over different colors. And it turns out we checked on material, we checked on bootstrap, we checked on all of these. They do not pass the, st the highest standards of accessibility regarding color contrast. Well, yeah, I was going to say those are, it depends on, I mean, because the yeah, standards can vary. So There are several standards, right? But the possible, ones, the ones oh. we are given by VMware, which I believe are the ones given by the U.S. government for mm -hmm. public domain applications, or not, not public domain, but applications used by public servants, um, those requirements are higher than what material or bootstrap respect, for instance, and we have to respect them. So. For instance, one very simple example, people have been asking for a yellow color in our color palette that lets you write on white on top of it. And Bootstrap offers one. Uh, we couldn't figure one out. Uh, the, the, as soon as it's contrasted enough with white, it pretty much looks brown. Uh, so there are some things like this that we don't have. We can't give you a warning button in yellow with white text because this is not going to be access accessible according to the standards we have to respect. Okay. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash adventures in Angular. I, I thought that like um, uh, Material cared about that and, and that, that the Lighthouse tooling is, you, you know about Lighthouse, right? Because it checks both response, responsiveness and, and all that other stuff, but it also has accessibility measures in it and it picks up things like contrast, I thought. Um, so, did I miss something or do you use other tools to, to um, validate your accessibility requirements? So um, we... In, we initially tried several tools and because we want data that's completely integrated with the build, we actually have code in our SAS, SAS functions that take a bunch of arguments, um, the, the text color, the background color, but also the font weight, the font size, etc., and compute, I mean, return pretty much a Boolean saying yes or no, this is accessible according to whatever the standards are. And I believe that code, uh, we didn't write it, we took it from one of those tools and of course acknowledge it in the code. Um, but this is this is what we're using. We, we care about it so much, it's in our SAS itself. And, and to be fair, Material is way better than Bootstrap in terms of accessibility. They do have a lot of, of uh, checking in there and, and a lot of it is 
is is is accessible. It's just apparently not good enough for people deciding about accessibility at VMware. So this is where we had to do our own, and this is where we have a bit more constraints than other design systems. Uh, fascinating. Um, hey, can I switch gears on you? Something. Uh, one of the things that I've, uh, John and Papa and I have been struggling with um, is how to package up um, some, uh, you know, a third-party library uh, so that it can be consumed in the Angular, Angular ecosystem. And clearly, you must have solved this problem. So, how did you tackle it? Um, I can talk a little bit about that. We are currently doing a uh, beta alpha for our next version. And we actually are using a tool that basically follows the Angular package format so that we can provide the, the consumption to people in a variety of builds. So what that basically means is, is providing the bundle, the code in the bundle folder, the code in the ES5 and the ES6 folder so that however you're consuming clarity, there's a, a package for you to consume with the, the typical tools. Um, that's where we're moving to right now. It was all uh, sort of looking at best practices and tweaking the build to output the code in the right in the right place. Um, that's the, the short answer I have for you. Um, is, is this a tool you guys wrote? Is it something uh, anybody can find? Uh, yeah, we looked at we looked at doing it ourselves and at the time, when we were making this, we were also making a switch to Webpack. There's a, a fellow out there with a uh, tool called ng Packager, no E, and ng P A C K G R, I think it is, um, that that does this. There were a, a couple um, issues we had, and he was pretty responsive in helping us work through them and, and fixing some some issues on his end. So I'd highly recommend it if if you're just looking to package it up and not have to worry about it. When I looked into the code, it was, it was a very interesting project because the way he's doing it is basically instantiating the Angular compiler in code and, and then iterating through all the, the files that you give it when you configure his tool. Um, so it was kind of novel from, from where I sat when I looked at how he was doing it. But you decided to go a different way, it sounds. No, we, we went with the ng packager. We we looked at that versus rolling our own to to conform to the Angular package format, and decided to go with ng Packager because it did everything we needed, and we didn't have to write it ourselves. Right, because that's one I've heard I've been hearing most about. Um, uh, I don't have any direct experience with it, but I, uh, but yeah, ng Packager. Okay, we should put that in the show notes. Yeah, ng Packager is really good. Uh, one one thing also is that uh, we started Clarity when Angular was still in beta. We released internally when Angular was in release candidates, and then open source later when Angular was fully released. And because of this, <laughs> our build and delivery system has changed at least five times with a complete refactor every time. So these days we're using ng Packager, but before that, yes, we did have a manual gulp build. Uh, at some point, even in the beginning, we didn't even have gulp. It was just plain NPM and scripting. Uh, so a lot of solutions out there. The problem is nowadays to deliver an Angular application, you need so many deliverables 
the types on one side and the ES6 JavaScript on the other, and then the modules in JavaScript too, and then the main bundle. And you have a bunch of deliverables. And this is where, yeah, ng Packager, not having to maintain it and having someone as responsive as he is working on it is, is great. And we're hoping if more people adopt it, then there can be external contributions to it and it can pretty much be the standard to deliver third-party uh, libraries with Angular. Yeah, that's that's good. I'm pretty much stuck in my own stuff uh, with uh, my gulp, <laughs> my gulp tasks, which fortunately have no components in them, right? Because I, I tend to do these other these kind of invisible infrastructure typey things. Um, so you guys, with having to play ball with the Angular compiler and and have components, it's you, you know it's really got to work for you. So if it works for you, uh, <laughs> it should work for those of us um, writing less ambitious things. Exactly. And it let us, in particular, we were able to still have a single code base and three different NPM packages to publish. That did work. So what's your frontier? What's next? Uh, we've heard of Clarity charts. Uh, Clarity, a lot of things. Um, and to be fair, right now we're... There are a few things we really wanted to do to stabilize the code enough to call Clarity 1.0. We're still 0. something. Uh, we're stable enough that actual products use us everywhere, but um, we still had a few breaking changes in mind to clean up the code base. And these have been postponed by other higher priorities constantly, you know, new features that absolutely need to happen now and things like that. Um, of course, we're open source, but we work for a large company. So sometimes uh, what we want to do for the open source doesn't happen before what the company really needs right now. Um, after the 1.0, though, uh, we did have several projects in mind. Someone did really want to start Clarity Charts. And for this, we're, we have to investigate whether we want to use existing charting libraries, write it from scratch, um, whatever the solution is. Um, if we want to go you know, from scratch or D3 or higher level things, like uh, maybe if it's C3 is. Uh, like a layer on top of D3. Um, there were also um, talks, and this is more internal, but uh, about more specific components that don't make sense in a in a in a in a library. Pretty much splitting Clarity into smaller pieces so that maybe we can have different teams working on different on different subsets of components, and then people will only pick and choose what they need. Uh, when I say this, I'm thinking of, uh, what was it? Uh, there were some very, very specific components requested at VMware, stuff like uh, uh, spreadsheets, and what was the other one? Something about splitters, oh, uh, code editing, or something like this. These are too specific to be part of a generic component library. So these would be, potentially part of a different library that would ship on the side. Um, but yeah, pretty much right now we're 100% focused on maintaining, stabilizing, releasing 1.0, um, and increasing the features of most of our components. Yeah, I think one of the uh, the other ones was a some sort of like a feedback tool or, 
or some sort of widget that could be included in an app that handles all of the feedback or chatting for your app. Um, but I want to touch base too on something else we've talked about, which is we we just put out the Clarity Dark theme because that was asked for by a lot of our our internal customers and tried to do it in a way that ended up doing something very similar or or almost the same that Bootstrap did and that you you override SAS variables and then you you can customize the output if you're doing your own custom build. But we also, when I did that work, I recognized that it was, you know, just clunky enough and just hard enough that we want to explore two things. One is giving a little more control in a dynamic nature to the themes applied to specific components. And the other one is exposing some of the um, accessibility code, the the mix-ins and the plugins that we use in the SAS that Oots talked about earlier for accessibility, exposing those in a way that's that's easy to use. And and part of that would be sort of documenting how it's being used in our case, use our, our code base so that others can can take advantage of that with with their own stuff if they're doing a custom build with clarity anyways. There's one more thing I forgot to mention. I don't know how it slipped. I mean this is I know it's uh and uh, adventures in Angular, but um, one of the things we're thinking of doing after this is obviously releasing charity for other JavaScript frameworks. Um, we still we never consider... talk about those. We never. I know you don't. <laughs> we don't acknowledge that they exist. Let's let's just say custom no, elements, that... not other frameworks, just native custom oh, elements. Oh no, they, they that, we never say the R word here. We never say. Oh no, I'm not mentioning here. the R word, the V word, none of these. No, no, uh, no. You can talk about backbone if you want, though. <laughs> <laughs> to that anyway, you're safe. Um, yeah, so so this is say, this is you, one part. So you are making plans for custom elements as well as other frameworks. So we actually had this. I'm going to say the R word, but um, we <laughs> we had a very very strong request internally at VMware from one product um, to do Clarity React, and we considered options. We did quick prototypes for Clarity React, Clarity Stencil, I believe, with Stencil JS because it looked promising at the time and clarity custom elements where we just manually do custom elements or at the time there wasn't angular uh, angular elements so we're looking at different options if we really really needed to support clarity react uh, if we really really needed to support react um based on those prototypes if i remember correctly we would do an actual clarity react but this is not part of the plans right now um Clarity custom custom elements is uh, we do want to do at some point uh, Clarity custom elements. You remember how I said that Clarity has this we call this Clarity UI, but this layer where you can just put the CSS and anything static is properly styled. Well, we would like to add plain JavaScript or custom elements to this so that we can grow it little by little by adding first the simple components that require just a little JavaScript and potentially one day reach feature parity, for instance, with Clarity Angular. Um, but that would be fantastic because that would let people not using Angular still benefit, still use the more dynamic components. But again, 
right now, all of VMware uses Angular, or 90% of VMware uses Angular, and, and we're focused on that because I do believe as a developer that right now, if you're writing large enterprise applications with dozens of developers on the same app, Angular is the only choice. Um, I, I won't necessarily go into detail for this, but yeah, so we're focused on Angular right now. <clears throat> well, the sponsors of our show who send boatloads of money Chuck way, Chuck's way every, <laughs> every week so that we can say Angular um, <laughs> are very pleased to hear this. Um, uh, no, no, but I'm joking aside. I, I, you know, it, it is interesting. And Ionic, for example, which was on here a while back, was talking about how they were doing everything with custom elements underneath so that they could support all the frameworks. Um, that was part of their new architecture, if I remember correctly. Probably butchered it. Yeah. Uh, and that's an interesting choice. And so, Angular Elements is an interesting choice. We talked to them, actually. Uh, I believe we talked to someone at Ionic. And, uh, one of the issues I have looking at their solution, and it's actually the one I have from the beginning with custom elements, is as good as your custom element can be, sure, it will integrate with all frameworks or almost all frameworks out there, uh, but it will always be less performance than a solution written natively in that framework. And this is my problem. If you're focusing on enterprise apps, and you're, for instance, trying to write a data table that can handle a million items in there, um, sure, you can write a custom elements table that will work for all frameworks. But if it's 50% slower than the one written in Angular and the one written in the other frameworks, then no one's going to use it. Everyone using a framework will just use the one from their framework. So that's my well, main that's problem. That's for sure. That's for sure. Data tables are like, I don't even know. How, that you could necessarily, you'd have to. I would think you'd have to sidestep a lot of things. You're going to virtualize. You got all. I mean, that's that one's really tough to make that perform. But little details, anything that handles drag and drop, mm. will kill performances in an Angular app. If if you just write it as a custom element, because of zone actually encapsulating the whole page and and watching everything. Yeah. So I mean, we've had that problem. I remember with a past version of a drag and drop somewhere uh, at VMware. And they had huge issues where you would drag and the application will slow down to a crawl and they couldn't figure it out. And the answer was, yeah, it's just Angular watches everything on the page now instead of uh, just scopes. Yeah, that's the poster child. Drag and drop is a good poster child for, what, for teaching yourself how to step outside of the Angular zone. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So those of you listening out there and you want to... If you want to have a motivation to learn about zones and how to get out of them, yeah. But when you do a custom element, how do you how do you step out? Do you actually exactly. have a hard dependency on Angular and on Zone? Uh, yeah. You can't, right? You can't have a hard dependency on Angular if your whole point is writing custom elements. So you can get out of the zone, and if you just write a custom element, your Angular users cannot run the full custom element outside of the zone either, because they just write the element in HTML. So I, uh, there might be a solution, but the integration is going to be a nightmare. It's it's a good warning point for folks. Out there. <laughs> so it's, I mean, I, I I really like the idea of doing custom elements, but I'm not jumping on it right now because of those performance issues. Every single framework will have performance issues, different ones, with custom elements. And as much as you might integrate with everyone, if you're 
if you're not the best in every single, if you're not the best for every framework, then no one's going to use it. Interesting. So one last question that I have is, and this goes more to how you write Clarity than anything else. Um, you said that you're really strict about pull requests and things like that. What, what is your process then for uh, validating pull requests and or contributing to uh, Clarity and ve and verifying that it works? <laughs> we literally talked about this yesterday to try and we, we have a ticket to iron out the process. So we've decided on the process. Uh, it hasn't been documented yet so you're the first ones uh, Yay. That would, uh, um, first step is we're gonna write a just like you have template for i mean issues templates on github we're gonna write a contribution template not for the pr but for something you post as an issue or as a comment on an issue that you have to fill out to say i want to contribute doing this are you okay with it? Because we've had too many PRs where people contribute and the core idea itself won't go through. Designers say, no, this is bad UX. We won't have it at all. Mm -hmm. And then the person wrote it, you know, wrote a thousand lines of code and it's just not going in and we don't even have to review the code because designers said no. So first step is going to be, I want to contribute and do this. And the template is going to have stuff like, um, what is it going to look like? What's the user interaction? If I click, if I press enter, the keyboard shortcuts, and as I mentioned before, the API of the of the feature or the component you want to write. With the, with those three, we, you don't even have to mention architecture yet. With those three, we can say if yes or no, you can start coding for your PR, and we'll try to be as responsive as possible on this. Um, at that point, you can submit the PR. We'll review it there's a pretty good chance that there's going to be significant changes requested on the PR, um, sometimes architecture changes. But what we try and do is really help you and point out exactly what needs to be changed. Um, it's still very manual and you have to do it yourself, but we're trying to point out. And then when we're really interested in the PR and it gets abandoned because it's too much work to maintain it for the people who wrote it, we'll take it, preserve the first comment from the author to acknowledge that they wrote it and then take it over from there and refactor it. We've done that a couple times. On the larger PRs, sadly, we don't have time for it, but it's still possible. But we're hoping that by having this contribution template in the first place, it'll be much easier and the PRs will have less things to modify uh, once they come in. You know, that doesn't sound to me different than any other framework I've been involved with. I mean, you know, take Angular itself. They're not, you know, they're not chewing into every giant PR. A lot of the PRs are little gotchas here, comment mm -hmm. fixes, things like that. Um, and if you don't submit them with tests and you don't follow the guidelines and the templates, you're not going to get anywhere with a PR. And that's the rest of us who consume the framework are grateful for that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. Right? We're, we're not asked, we're not interested in having you accept every PR that comes along. So that the thing bristles with features that make no sense in terms of the overall architecture. Um, but those little PRs that find bugs and fix them, those, you know, that are co accompanied with tests, those are always welcome. Uh, and if you suddenly have some giant feature you want to talk about, maybe it's better to talk to the framework owners before, you know, creating us whole half 
excuse me, half-baked thing, uh, <laughs> and uh, and saying, what are you doing with my PR that touches 600 files, you know? Um, so uh, I just wanted to say that I don't, you know, be, I, you don't sound to me like people who are uh, um, putting up roadblocks that are uh, more severe than anything else that I would expect. That, I mean, you haven't seen the comments on the PRs. <laughs> uh, we've had... And I'm not joking about this. We've had PRs with 200 lines of code that had about 30 comments on them. Wow. Um, we're, a lot of this is also because well, we hadn't documented our conventions and architecture and, 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 and things that are... The only way for you to know is to look at our components. And because these have changed a few times because of all the Angular changes, obviously, since beta, um, some of the components you might look at might be outdated and might not have moved to the latest convention. So this is where we have a lot of issues with that. It's people taking a component as an example, copy-pasting it, starting from there, and then we come back and say, yes, we're sorry, that component hasn't been updated in the last year. And since then, Angular 4 and 5 have come out. and Conventions have changed. Uh, we have to do it differently, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's where we're we're being uh, pretty strict. Is we're trying really to follow specific conventions about how we do things. Um, I, I had one at some point. I think we respect that. I just wanted to say, yeah, I know. As, uh, but, as somebody and, who's and been again, out there, we respect that. Those people who have ever been in open source understand the dilemma and respect that decision. And we're. In clarity, we were all new to open source or pretty new to open source uh, when we started. So what something that might seem obvious to you took us, you know, a few months to, to grasp sometimes. Um, so we're still learning. Yep. So I guess the one question that we didn't ask that we probably should have, and we're already over time, and I feel bad taking up a little bit of time, but if somebody wanted to try out clarity, how do they pull it into their Angular app and start fiddling with it? We we actually have a, another Clarity Seed project. You can just Google Clarity Seed, and we maintain it enough that it stays up to date. It's a very simple Angular CLI app, and it's already got in, uh, Clarity integrated. Um, the other part is if you don't want to do that, I would still recommend using the Angular CLI, and then we've got a step-by-step guide on the um, clarity.design website that walks you through put this in your scripts array put this in your styles array and you know import from the correct uh, package to get you up and running so it's it's pretty easy to get started a lot of that work is really because the angular cli is is very usable nice we'll put a link to that in the show notes then and that way uh, curious parties can go check it out, and we don't have to try and explain over the. We don't have to try and read code over the over the podcast. You sure make it sound easy, though. Yeah, uh, it's it's not very hard. Uh, we need a step by step guide because there are three npm packages: one for icons, one for the static styles, and one for the Angular components. But other than that, it's just installing simple npm packages and Angular modules. All right. Well, the last thing that I'm going to ask before we get to picks is if people want to follow what's going on with Clarity or follow you guys on Twitter, GitHub, or maybe have a blog, 
Where, where do they go for that kind of thing? Oh, sure. Um, so we have a blog on Medium. It's uh, Clarity Design System. And then our Twitter handle is at VMware Clarity. And we're, we're pretty responsive on there. Another place that we, we needed some help, as someone mentioned earlier, with the um, deluge of issues and questions on GitHub. So we've started trying to redirect some of the things that are more questions and how-tos to Stack Overflow. So if you search on Stack Overflow for the VMware-Clarity tag, um, post a, a question there, we monitor those channels as well. And... All of these links are actually on our website, so you don't have to note them. Uh, our, we have a pretty cool URL. So the website is at clarity.design. Oh, That's nice. it. Uh, so at clarity.design, uh, there is the website, and there is a community page. And on that page, you have the Twitter handle, the Stack Overflow tag, the Medium um, link, uh, of course, the GitHub link, and you also have Twitter handles for every developer on the team and every designer on the team. So you can just go there. You'll have everything you need. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere available from any device uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Alyssa, do you want to go first? Well, sure. Um, so these should not be new to you unless, of course, you have been living under a rock. But uh, NG Atlanta and NG Comp are both coming up. So if you'd like to go, I will assuredly be at both. Not sure in what capacity. Speaking at NG Atlanta, I hope to speak at NG Comp. But please get your tickets now while they're still available because I would love to hang out with you all and uh, talk nerdy. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Ward, do you have some picks for us? Well, uh, let's see. Uh, I got a new hammock for Christmas, and I slept out in Tahoe in sub-freezing weather in it. And I can report, it's cold out there. <laughs> <laughs> wow, are you uh, starting your career as a meteorologist? Oh, <laughs> yeah, and my that's, goodness. Yeah, the water bottle froze, you know, but I, I'm still talking, so I'm alive. Ward did um, so I can't recommend that experience just yet, um, but I, I got a uh, present, which is a book called Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. And I read it in one sitting, um, even though it's 260 pages, it goes really fast. And it's, it's essentially a ghost story wrapped around a very intelligent ghost, uh, ghost story wrapped around 
and the um, death of Willie Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son, and which was a crushing blow to the Lincolns. And he goes, Lincoln just can hardly let it go. He's really bereaved. And he goes out to the tomb where uh, on the night that he's laid Willie to rest. And that's the historical fact. And around this is a wild um, ghost story in which uh, characters in the graveyard are interacting with Willie and with Lincoln and with each other. And it's written in a style I've never seen before, and it's brilliant, and I'm not the only person who thinks so, because the really great writers have all um, talked about it and won the Man Booker Prize. So if you're interested in, in an unusual and gripping read, Lincoln in the Bardo is the book. Awesome. Joe, what are your picks? All right, so I just got one pick, and that is the movie Jumanji. Went and saw it with the family, hilarious. Well done movie. It was absolutely great. Highly recommend it. And that's it. Jumanji. And I think that at this point, since 100% of every movie, movie, all the movies that I have seen with The Rock and, um, oh my gosh, what's that comedian's name? This, the really short Oh, he's guy. wonderfully Jack Black? funny. Yes. No, no, no. no he's Jack like, Black. Josh Gad? Well, well, he's in that. He's great. Uh, yeah. uh, I know who you're thinking of. Sure. Uh, <laughs> what? The one that with the... Greek name? No, that wasn't him. Um, I don't remember. Is it Josh Gad? Is he in that one? Uh, no. No. Um, Kevin. Uh, yeah, it's the guy from Beauty. Oh, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. Any movie with Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart is awesome. Because uh, <laughs> the movie uh, Central Intelligence was also absolutely was hilarious. Oh my gosh. You I'm laughing. surprised that you liked it, Joe, because me and you are pretty on par for movie taste. Right. And like, I was kind of bored. <laughs> <laughs> Jumanji or Central Intelligence? Jumanji. Were you, you were bored? Uh, a little bit. Did you like bit. the original? Uh, I did. I loved the original. But this uh, one felt like it was this awkward place between trying to be a kid movie, but like also trying to be an adult movie. And I feel like they missed both demographics. Like, not entirely. It was still in, entertaining, but I don't think it's collection worthy. I thought that's so, what like, the first one was. Did, did uh, you see the one by the original with Robin Williams? That, like, was, that was a terrific fan? movie. <laughs> that one was awesome. So you're uh, saying you I, were I, just sort of bored and not bored at Star Wars bored? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh you don't, my it, gosh, you hated it, Star Wars? Are you? You, you missed that. <laughs> I thought, I thought it, was a, it was. Okay, awful, can of worms open. Flower. Let's <laughs> going verging on two weeks. Awful. Oh, all right. I'm gonna jump in I here. I never with... tire of giving my review of that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks myself. Um, so I'm starting to document the processes around making podcasts. And I have jumped from system to system to system trying to find a good place where I want to document this stuff. And I've had issues with pretty much all of them. Um, but the latest one that I've settled on that is making me happier than the others is called PB Wiki. And you can find it at pbworks.com. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. So if you're looking for a place to document stuff, um, that seems to be a good place. And the reason that I'm looking for something that's a little bit more sort of WYSIWYG editor-ish is because I have people who work on my stuff that don't want to write their uh, the documentation that on the stuff they're doing in Markdown. Um, so rather than make them learn Markdown, I just you know give them a simple WYSIWYG in a wiki. So anyway, that's my pick. Uh, Matt, what are your picks? 
Matt, are you on mute? Yes, I am. Oh, sorry. Um, I put off learning Fluxbox as long as I possibly could, and that probably hurt me more in the long run. So this time around, I'm, I've been trying to get into a deeper dive of grid, uh, CSS Grid, and uh, the avenue I'm using right now is a game called Grid Critters by the same guy who did Fluxbox Zombies uh, last year. So that's one of my picks. The good other friend pick, of mine, uh, good friend of mine, Dave Geddes, also yep. an organizer of NGConf. Cool. Yeah, it's it's a very well done app. I mean, it's very slick. I like how it works. Um, the other thing I would recommend is I am not a huge history buff, but I wanted to learn more about um, Caesar and Rome. And I came across a podcast episode by Dan Carlin called he runs a podcast called Hardcore History. Oh, and that's awesome. The, I love that the Celtic. The Celtic Holocaust is one of the most fascinating five and a half hours or so that I listen to history on, and so I would highly recommend that one. I want the link to that. I have not heard of this. Yeah, hardcore history is incredible. Ood, what are your picks? So, um, because my time these days on my job is spent mostly reviewing and in meetings and doing stuff like that more than coding, I actually like coding on my free time. And because most of my free time I have to spend with the kids watching Disney movies, especially Moana, um, I try and find little time to code here and there. So anything that gamifies code, um, I just love. So my first, bo both picks are going to go in that direction. My first pick I'm almost sure someone recommended it beginning of December on the podcast, but it's Advent of Code. Uh, it's January 3rd, so it's over, uh, but it's still available and anyone can do it. They have the three past years, and at the very least, if you don't want to do the past years, just monitor it for next December. So it's called Advent of Code, Advent, just like as in Advent Calendar. It's adventofcode.com, and it's... Uh, 25 little puzzles that unlocked one after the other in December, and you would just go, you had to do some programming, some coding to solve the puzzles, and you'd get a nice picture at the end, little stars, things like that. It's just fun. And the other one that kind of blew my mind, and I really loved it, is a cyberpunk game. Um, I found randomly, and it's called Bitburners. Bitburner, yes, B-I-T-B-U-R-N-E-R. -E the first result on Google if you search this. And where it blew my mind is it's a game that you play by scripting the way you play the game. <laughs> so first you do stuff manually and then you script it and then you script the scripts and you do that over and over until it just you're hoping it runs by itself, but they keep adding stuff over and over so it can never run by itself. You're just adding more scripts. And what I liked about it is that it forces you to program in a absolutely terrible programming language. Think a terrible subset of JavaScript. With is it a real language or is it something? It's, it's pretty out. much, no, the guy wrote his own uh, interpreter, interpreter for, for the code. Uh, he took JavaScript as a basis, so it's kind of a subset of JavaScript, but it has terrible variable scoping. It doesn't have objects. Functions are not objects. It's it's really, really, really basic language. And the reason he wrote his own interpreter is that it can actually run stuff offline, or it can interpret and, and 
generate statistics for the, the, that code. So, I mean, it makes sense. And the other part is not only is the code terrible, uh, is the, the language terrible, but it actually runs at one operation per 50 milliseconds. So you better make sure your code is fast, because otherwise you're going to be there forever. And that forces you to really think about what you're writing. And this sounds like a nightmare to me. <laughs> and, and no, but it's it's an actual game, and so it I, I can just tell you to try it. It, it works. You're you're hacking servers to gain mo money mm -hmm. in the cyberpunk universe, and then. You discover stuff after is that I don't want to spoil it all, but it's Warden. very simple interface. It's just you're you're playing on a terminal. That's the no, whole it's not, interface. It sounds like I've just been working on Joe's code. <laughs> oh, <I'm... laughs> so Warden. I mean, I, I gamification I makes anything was... awesome, right? They could gamify like a root canal, and then people would want to go and have root canals. Gamify <laughs> anything, anything, but that that one worked for me. Not all of them worked, but that one was. Um, the constraints of the language actually make it pretty, uh, pretty interesting to work with. Nice. All right. Well, um, thank you both for coming. Uh, this has been a lot of fun and, uh, really it's just interesting to see what people are doing out there to contribute to Angular and to the community at large. And design is one of those areas that I don't feel like we necessarily talk about enough. So thank you for coming and sharing with us. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we'll be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>